Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell. I'm Sam. And I'm Lou. And welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. On this episode, we're going to review Faith No More's 1992 album, Angel Dust. So Sam, let's start with you. Give a quick recap of your Faith No More history and where you come in with this particular album. I'm not sure if it was uh, Tony Thomas, my buddy, who, quick plug, does a little bit of Synergy podcast. Yep. Uh, I think he probably had this laying around and played it for me because I know that I saw it. I saw that album cover at Tony's place. So I think it was him. And I have another friend that I actually listened to it with uh, named Bob Lamb. I don't know where he is now. It's one of those friends that just kind of disappeared. But I didn't like it at first, but it grew on me. That, you know, it's like, oh, I can't, like, because of this, whoever just kept playing it and uh, I, I kind of <laughs> liking to it. And then I fell off of Faith No More for years. I, I didn't listen to anything until Tony, I know this for sure, played me album of the year. And then I went back and kind of rediscovered their good albums. And uh, this one, I'm glad you, uh, we're doing this one today. It's good. All right. Lou. I heard Faith No More when Epic came out. And I bought that CD, the real thing. And I, I was totally floored. Every song on that album is just, it's just a masterpiece. And I went up going backward and finding Introduce Yourself, their demo, We Care A Lot, Live at the Brixton Academy. It, it's fucking amazing band. I was, I was hooked. I, I knew they had a previous singer, Chuck Mosley. And although the early, early stuff was great and Introduce Yourself is an amazing record on its own, I could see how they could have plateaued with that guy and why they replaced him with Pat and they hit a new kind of sound and it was fucking awesome. Uh, but with the real thing, the band had most of the, that material was written already and Patton came in and did his thing over that. I think he wrote it in like two weeks. He was more involved with the creative process on this record. So when it came out, I didn't even have to think twice and I just bought it without even hearing anything. And that's, that's where we'll leave it until dot, dot, dot. All right. You can almost rinse and repeat what you said, Lou, for me. Uh, this is the third time we've reviewed Faith No More on the podcast. We've done the real thing and album of the year. But as far as this one goes, I couldn't wait for this fucking album to come out. At the time, I was all about Faith No More. As I discovered them like most of the country did, like Lou did with the previous album, The Real Thing and the song Epic. And me and my buddy Keith listened to that album the whole summer of 1989. And just like you said, Lou, I even went back and I got the two albums before The Real Thing with Chuck Mosley. And I got live at the Brixton Academy CD. So yeah, I, I was a massive fan. And I got the CD on release day. And then I took it back and played it. <laughs> and let's just say I was not ready for what I was about to hear. <laughs> we'll leave that at that. Now I'll give you some basic facts about this record, ripped straight from Wikipedia. Angel Dust is the fourth studio album by American rock band Faith No More, released on June 8th, 1992 on Slash and Reprise Records. It was produced by Matt Wallace and Faith No More, and was recorded in late 1991 as well as January to March 1992 at Coast Recorders and Brilliant Studios, San Francisco, California. It reached number 10 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified gold by the RIAA. 
And here's the band's lineup card. We've got Mike Borden on drums, Roddy Bottom on keyboards, Billy Gould on bass, Jim Martin on guitar, and Mike Patton on vocals. All right, let's move on into a track-by-track analysis of this album. Leading things off is Land of Sunshine, written by Billy Gould, Roddy Bottom, and Mike Patton. Sam, what do you think? Man, uh, they don't waste any time smacking you in the face like they have done on other records. I appreciate that. They have a, like a Tyson punch ready that they saved. You know, the one in the chamber that's going to come at you, the first note, it's like, and they did that on uh, with Collision on uh, album of the year, too. I really dig it, man. I like when it comes in loud. And the bass line is <laughs> the first of many earworms that are on this record. That fucking bass line, this it's grabs me as a do 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 I fucking love that shit, man. I can't help but I'm drawn in, man. It's already got its hooks in me, and I'm I'm being reeled in real fast. Fucking love it. It's a sexy ass. Does life seem worthwhile to you? It's been in my head all fucking week, man. And there's so many more. It's they're hard to keep track of because they all run together. They also have some like conceptual continuity going on, like Zappa does, I think. There's some kind of like, I don't know if it's just their style or something, man, but I'm grabbed right away. And this is a banger of an opener. I'm in. Lou, you in? Oh, yeah. That jarring ejaculation of sound that starts this. It pounds like mercilessly for a few measures, and then the band settles into that slap bass groove with the stabs of the keyboards in and out while a chugging metal guitar rides over the top. Patton delivers a melodic verse written from various fortune cookies, better than Anthony Kiedis could and wishes he ever could. I hear a carnivalistic descending scale by Roddy on the keys. Sounds like something out of Phantom and the Opera. I expect to have goblins with candelabras chasing me down a long stretched out hallway that keeps getting longer and longer as I drop my shoe. Dude. I, I wrote, I already wrote this along with caffeine during a sleep deprivation experiment and his inspiration for some of the lyrics that he came up with were from watching Scientology infomercials on late night television. That's enough to drive anybody insane. Jim Martin gives a serviceable bluesy solo and the keyboard breakdown has Patton singing opera for a few lines. This band's tight as a fucking whip. I mean, if you listen to it and it's all it's uh, you're right, Sam, they have this metal funk fusion. That's more metal than the chili peppers, but it's a, definitely a sign of what's to come from this band and this multifaceted eccentric eclectic singer they hired. Here's how to order. When I first got this album and I pressed play and this song came on, the first thing I thought was, what the fuck is this? 
This sounds almost like a different band. I mean, all the, the classic elements are all there. Mike Borden lays down that muscular beat. Billy Gould slaps that funky bass. Jim Martin provides the metalized, palm-muted riffs. And Roddy Bottom brings the atmospheric keyboards with occasional lines of melodic counterpoint. But Mike Patton? Holy shit. It's like the band took the lid off Pandora's box and let him run wild. He sings in all kinds of crazy voices, different cadences. He makes odd sounds and vocal noises. This is like a mad scientist run amok. More akin to what he does in his other bands like Mr. Bungle. And I fucking love it now, though I didn't at first when I heard this. This is an entirely different vibe than the previous album, The Real Thing. There's barely any melody. There's no pop hooks. Very quotable lines from Patton, but there's nothing accessible about this. It's like some kind of metallic avant-garde art rock. It's a difficult listen at first. But once it clicks and you let it get inside you, it sinks deep. And you appreciate the craftsmanship and sheer ballsy, zonked-out brilliance of it. Like you, Lou, I read that the lyrics of this track and the following track were the result of patent trying lack of sleep experiments. And in this song, the words are taken from Scientology, that made-up science fiction religious cult that worships a space alien and Tom Cruise as deities or some shit like that. Be careful. <laughs> and also some fortune cookies. And though I don't know shit about Scientology, honestly, I do know it's fun as fuck to quote some of the lines of this song and attempt to sing them in the whacked-out stylings of Mike Patton. But suffice to say that when I hear this tune, I sing and rejoice. Sing and rejoice. rejoice. This was the second single from the album that didn't chart. The next track is Caffeine, written by Billy Gould and Mike Patton. your thoughts it sounds like feeding time at the zoo as they crash into the thrash metal rift that's slightly that slowed down kind of sludgier than if it was written 10 years before jim martin definitely has a thrash mentality i love the space that they give in between the verses where mike borden is really just doing rim shots and ticking like a fucking clock in afib he's the real hero here Patton comes in from everywhere, in and out of the ether, creeps up on your spine and makes your hair stand on end. It goes from spacey to thrash and back again, weaving between the two. This is fucking magic. Even when Patton's spazzing out behind it and through everything, it just fits like he belongs in that space, though. The repetitive riffs change up and they're often enough that it's always fresh and never outstays its welcome. They keep me engaged throughout the song. I dig the way the bass changes up around three quarters of the way through and then cycles back around again. It's almost like math rock. These guys take you for a ride. No one ever said it was going to be safe for it to be comfortable. This song is fucking weird. It's great and I love it, but it's fucking weird. <laughs> Sam. Damn it, Lou. You said everything I was going to say. So I will just react to what you said. Um, yeah, man. <laughs> it's yeah, fucking cool fucking song. Um, I don't understand a damn thing that Mike Patton sings. I can't hear what he's saying 
because he only uses like a couple of consonants and <laughs> until he wants to use the consonants and then he'll say every fucking consonant as hard as he can. So it's hard to engage <laughs> this guy, right? The thing I like about this song is that I don't fucking know what he's saying. I don't understand the lyrics. I read the lyrics. I don't get it, but I, I love it. <laughs> I fucking love it. It doesn't need to mean anything, you know, I guess. But, you know, maybe it does. It's kind of fucks with me when I try to think about it. So I just kind of let it be. Um, but, yeah, another banger. Good review, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> Relax. It's just a phase, Sam. This one is all about that slamming, repeated guitar riff. It's beefed up by the bass, and it'll pound into your brain once those drums jackhammer it in there. Bottoms keyboards add spacey atmosphere and sound effects in the open breakdown sections that feature Borden playing rim shots to soften the vibe. Patton shouts out the verse vocals in a staccato pattern and murmurs in the breakdowns with some piercing screams thrown in to assault your eardrums. The lyrics were apparently written by Patton like the first song when he was hopped up on caffeine and he wandered into a bar and the lack of sleep caused him to listen to or imagine what the bar patrons were talking about. Or it could mean nothing, like you said, Sam. Patton always said he just likes to throw cool-sounding words together, so it could be just that. Again, this isn't going to get played on Top 40 Radio, but it's heavy and weird and the sound of it will infect you if you give it enough time. The following track is Midlife Crisis. Written by Roddy Bottom, Mike Borden, Billy Gould, and Mike Patton. Sam, lead us off. What the fuck is this? I can't tell what he's saying. I don't know <laughs> what I'm I don't understand what the fuck he's saying. But again, I love it. So fucking much, man. It's like, I think he's doing, he does it on purpose. Mike Patton's uh, superpower is like having different characters and songs and different, like I'm going to scream at like a, like a burning witch or I'm going to, uh, <laughs> You know, croon you if I want, you know, and, and then I could be really powerful. I could sound like an opera man. I could sound like, uh, I don't know that guy. I don't remember his name, but Josh Rogan, there's another one. Whoever the fuck sings opera, he can do that, right? So, and this song, he shows off his fucking range, but I don't fucking know what he's saying, but it also has a bunch of fucking earworms in it, man. I understand why this is, uh, their big hit off the record because they have these like uh, earworms man that they bore themselves into my, to my brain like sense of security midnight and see and then he does midnight I don't know what the fuck if I didn't read the words or the name of the song I know what fuck he said <laughs> I would have no idea but in, there's another earworm you're perfect yes it's true but without me, you are only you. It's all the same dude. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I fucking love this song, man. It's a fucking banger. That's three in a row. Lou, 
Yeah. Borden starts that off with, with the complex beat, with the bass thumping behind it. It's the perfect vehicle for Patton's schizophrenic, melodic, Jekyll and Hyde vocals. And again, these guys just pull the lever and all the fruit lines up. You could say it's this record's epic. And I wouldn't argue. It's a perfect marriage of percussive verses with melodic chorus. Makes a toe tapper of the album. The middle eight lends to the more off-the-wall attitude this time around, but it quickly falls back into the melodic sing-along. Minus a point for fading out, they could have easily finished it or segued into something else, but this is, this is an almost perfect tune. Borden's drums have a sample of Simon and Garfunkel's Cecilia added to them to give the intro that echoed extra percussive quality, and then we get into a mid-tempo tune with Gould's pulsing bass, Martin's hard-edge guitar chords, and Bottom riding over the top with his keyboard string atmospherics. Patton, of course, is doing his weird shit, singing in his lower register in a menacing half-whisper. You imitated it awesomely, Sam. And then using all sorts of whiny voices in the choruses. You imitated that awesomely, Sam. The bridge has a sample from the Beastie Boys' Car Thief and sounds like a descending and sliding whistle. And Patton said the lyrics are less about having an actual midlife crisis because he was too young to relate to that, but that it was about someone going through an emotional crisis and desperately seeking attention. He said he took inspiration from Madonna at the time, who was doing her erotica album and sex book and seemed to be naked and starving for attention all the time. The working title of this song was Madonna. This was the first single from the album that reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Alternative Airplay chart. That, yeah, that was Beastie Boys. Uh, yep, yep. I did not know that, dude. That's yeah, fucking cool. I didn't either. The next track is RV, written by Roddy Bottom, Billy Gould, and Mike Patton. like this one lou this fractured thought song starts <laughs> off with crooked piano line it's a brutal satire <laughs> brutal satire white trash americana <laughs> it's got an off kilter and sharp key that makes me uneasy and his vocal delivery is more euro trash than redneck uh, to me this isn't one of my favorites, but I don't skip it. And it's got some really repeatable lines in it that I'm going to let Aaron go into. <laughs> <laughs> Sam. I used to skip this one. As of, is this grown, of, you know, it's just 30 years old now. Is yeah. It 30 years. Yeah. This year. Oh yeah. So it's kind of grown on me. And so I don't skip it anymore. And it's like a creepy Odd spoken word, nonsensical ramble. To me, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about, dude. <laughs> I mean, I, but I keep listening. He's like, even when it's like, oh, oh, shit, you know, <laughs> kind of stuff in the song. I don't know. I kind of wait for it, and, and I'm satisfied when I hear it. It's like, yeah, 
Ah, oh, shit. I felt like this guy before. Everybody has. <laughs> but I'm not sure what it's about. I think he's, is he going to fucking kill himself and, in, in his fucking camper? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he's much. imagining it. Yeah. <laughs> he's a swinging guy. <laughs> that makes it funny. It, the fact that it's about, I'm going to kill myself in my camper. <laughs> makes it funny. I don't know why. I'm sorry. I don't want anybody to kill themselves in their campers, listeners. That's terrible. Uh, yeah, it's terrible. But but damn it. It's a funny tune. It's funny. <laughs> I'm going to call my kids and tell them they ain't going to be shit. It's like fucking horrible. <laughs> horrible to say it. It's absurd. And the absurd, it makes it funny. Uh, okay. I'll quit explaining the funny. It makes the joke not funny. Damn it. <laughs> Sorry, guys. All right. Time to review the next song. Now, what in the holy fuck nugget is this? Sounds like a third grader wrote this music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I sweat a lot, too. <laughs> you married a scarecrow? <laughs> I'm with you there, man. Hey, who the hell does this guy think he is, Elvis? I don't know where the kids are. What the hell am I listening to? Oh, hold on, I got a fart. <clears throat> Shit. <clears throat> Oops. It wasn't a fart. Well, I gotta go find someone to wipe my ass. Um, oh, yeah, it's my favorite track on the record. Hey, Mildred, get the wipes. It's pudding time again. Oh, shut up. They don't feel like farts to me. You know that. I'll meet you in the bathroom, woman. The following track is Smaller and Smaller, written by Billy Gould, Mike Borden, Roddy Bottom, Mike Patton, and Matt Wallace. How about this one, Sam? Man, I really like this song a lot. It's uh, just one of those songs that's kind of like builds a little bit, and then you can just scream it out. I play it loud, and then I scream when he screams, and I can't do that. And so then I'm hoarse afterwards. <laughs> I love the way it starts off with the heavy riff, man, and then when Pat sings this long, drawn-out notes, it just fits, man. It works, and it's pleasing to me. It's just good. It's off-putting. And beautiful. Also heavy. Uh, shit. And then Martin has this little single note thing. And uh, they do the the chorus that's uh, bite. And I don't know why he says bite. Why is it bite? He's bite, bite. And they, uh, a blood curdling, the burning wet scream. <laughs> yeah, it's like death metal fucking... Green bloody gore, Mike Cordes level fucking metal. And then it's back to the riff. And it builds tension and it releases it in such a healthy way with metal. You know, this fucking might be one of my favorite songs. But I might change my mind during this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the way that it's like, and it's a weird breakdown. It's a tasty solo from Martin at the end. You know, it's a great fucking song, man. 
That's five in a row. Lou. This is more of a sludgy thrash metal riff that would fit on Introduce Yourself. Jim Martin left after this record because he didn't like the sound of what was happening in the songs, but it's songs like this where you could you could hear him trying to break through. Patton's delivery sounds like Chuck, but his other personalities come out, and uh, he brings it to like another dimension. I can almost guess that this was an old leftover that they said, hey, Mike, what, what can you do with this? The middle part goes off into a tangent, uh, but it stays true to the Faith No More style of cramming a completely different song into the middle of another to make it sound way more epic. Um, the solo comes out of another out of nowhere change and leads them right back into the meat of the song again. It's like a puzzle. It almost has a lost in the desert feel to it. Definitely earworm material. I was talking to Sam earlier in the week and on Thursday and it, he said it was in his head and I could see it cause I had it in my head today. It's smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, <laughs> smaller and smaller and smaller, smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. This one feels like an alternative metal track with the keyboards providing a tense anxiety inducing atmosphere. And it's based around Martin's riffs and Gould mostly doubling them on bass with big dramatic open sections to let Patton shriek away. And because this is Faith No More, the bridge brings in a new funk-fueled rhythm and some samples that sound like Native American chanting. And then Martin gives us a slowly unwinding, very melodic guitar solo. Patton is his usual wacky self, changing inflections, cadences, and voices. And the lyrics are pretty cryptic, but I'm interpreting them to be about Manifest Destiny, the push of the white settlers westward in America in the mid-1800s, and forcing the Native Americans who survived the purge into smaller and smaller regions to live, eventually becoming reservations. Again, I dig the construction of the song, and I've got a very developed ear for this kind of thing by now, so I am in. The next track is Everything's Ruined, written by Billy Gould, Roddy Bottom, and Mike Patton. take it away i love the slightly sloppy carpenters type piano intro before the band crashes in with stereo chorus jim metalhead martin and billy gould doing the funky thump mike borden's right foot drives this while his snare accents opposite what any run-of-the-mill drummer would do this guy's really a great player again the verse into the melodic chorus is the winning formula here I found myself singing Everything's Ruined, Everything's Ruined over my headphones while I washed the after-dinner dishes with the raised eyebrow of my lovely wife, <laughs> oblivious to the sonic dopamine being fed into my brain canals. Fuck yeah, man. The solo is just a, a song within itself, excellently executed by a frustrated Jim Martin. Actually, if you take all the distortion and effects off of it and crank up the reverb, it almost sounds like the solo from Big Log from Robert Plant. Maybe, maybe not call me kooky, but I, I drew that. They go through one more verse 
And when it sounds like they may fade out, they abruptly put the brakes on. Great tune, one of the highlights of this CD. Great fucking track. Sam. Damn it, Lou. (laughs) 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 That's great review, man. Yes, I love this song, too. Um, I like the the bass line, Billy Gould. This slap. I love his fucking sound. It growls when he wants it to growl. He can make it spank when he wants it to spank. Doing them bass chords. Right. You know, it's like other other bands that we like on this uh, podcast also do that. Primus, Tool, who else? I thought I thought Aaron would definitely have picked Tool. But man, yes. <laughs> it pulses like like you said, Lou, it pulses this song pulses uh, in a really cool way with Borden's bass drum and Billy Gould's in it. It lays down a really cool foundation where that those other guys can just take off, man, and fly. You know, it's fucking great song, and it's also odd, man. And it's got weird earworms, man. It's not. It's like in a different mode or something. I don't know. It's a Phrygian or Nickelodeon. I don't know what the fucking mode it is, but it's something different about it that just makes me stay with it. This has turned out to be one of those records, man. I don't. I don't know about you guys. One of those records, Sam. The first thing you hear are those repeated discordant piano-sounding notes, and then the track takes off with elongated guitar lines that catch your ear over a funked-out, slap-happy bass line and a syncopated drum beat. Bottom's piano patch is heard throughout the track as gentle arpeggios, while his usual string-ish-sounding atmospherics are present. Patton sings this with a little more melody, even if he's still using multiple voicings and volumes like a schizophrenic off of his meds. And this is a track I find myself really bopping my head to, except the big start and stop section, which is cool as shit. To me, the lyrics are about raising a kid, using the metaphor of financial terms. The child is capital, a bouncing, shiny copper penny. The parents succeeded in multiplying themselves, but as the child grows up, he separates from his folks and takes in new influences, and the penny becomes a nickel, becomes a million, he makes the parents rich... But all the while, the parents lose touch with who the kid really is. He's become someone completely different they don't recognize. Now, I won't go as far as to say that this harkens back to Faith No More's older material, but it's a little less challenging to the average listener, to my ears anyway. This was the fourth single that reached number 28 on the UK singles chart. The following track is Malpractice, written by Mike Patton. Sam, what about this? Okay, man, this is the first time in the record that I kind of seem to struggle. It's a hard one, man. And uh, this one hasn't grown on me like others have, you know, that I used to struggle with. But this one I still struggle with. And I think it's I think it's on purpose. I think they want me to feel like a, an anxious, I don't know, it makes me nervous. This fucking song makes me, it's, it's like you're scared of heights. This one's one of those songs that makes you feel like that to me. Uh, but anyway, th- but then it gets pretty. 
then they they go back to being unfocused and unsettling and no I, I don't really dig this one man i mean it's no i don't like it lou well, it's got an industrial feel to it like a giant metal stamp or compactor you know some kind of automotive part maker Patton doing his best Mr. Bungle, Jekyll and Hyde mania to melodic psychosis vocals. This is disjointed. You're right. It's all over the place. I could see why their record company hated this this whole album and called it career suicide. (laughs) It's brutally heavy, but unnecessarily changes up at any given moment, which makes it sound like they just smashed about four different ideas together. But this time it just doesn't work at all. It's my skipper. Oh, yeah, I can tell that this is a Mike Patton soul writing credit. This very much sounds to me like something Mr. Bungle would do. It's got multiple sections, tempos, and rhythms. Martin's guitar slams you around like a rag doll. Borden's attacking his drums like a madman, and the song lurches from section to section like a stitched-up Frankenstein's monster. You guys were kind of saying this. This track is densely layered with numerous samples that you sometimes have to strain to hear, as well as a repeated four-second sample from Dmitry Shostakovich's, I know I pronounced it incorrectly, I apologize, string quartet number eight as played by the Kronos Quartet. Go fucking figure for that obscure sample. And there is absolutely zero pretenses to melody here. It's just like Patton's screaming passion play. It's designed to give you an extremely creeped out feeling. And holy shitballs, Batman, does it succeed. Even the quieter moments feel like a time bomb waiting to tick off. Patton screams, shrieks, and dips into his lower register from some menacing vibes. I read that these lyrics are about a patient being partially awake during surgery and becoming aroused and obsessed with the feeling of the doctors working on their insides. Yeah, that's malpractice, but is that a bad thing? This track is fucked up and fucking awesome. I love this, guys. The next track is Kindergarten, written by Roddy Bottom and Mike Patton. Let's have it. Well, this one's better. It reminds me of Cup of Sorrow, which will be on album of the year. It, it's got a good riff, funky downbeat and cool subdued keys behind the rhythm section. All this combined with Patton's rap like vocal style, blow anything the Chili Peppers were throwing at us at, just fucking out of the water. At this funk metal thing, I vastly prefer these guys over the Chili Peppers. Even though Faith No More has the same flavor, they never seem to be writing the same album over and over and over. Sam? Somebody likes harmonics. It's a cool trick you can do on certain spots on the string of a guitar that makes it sound cool. And they do that, and I like it. And the the funky-ass bass line with the synths playing the long notes over it is a hook that works on every genre of music. I don't know what you call this genre of music, but I love it. I fucking love it. And there's a bass solo in this song. That's really cool. 
There's rarely a bass solo in any song, man. This must be addressed. It must be appreciated. And so this song gets a, a, an extra bump for this animal. Uh, yeah, I love this one, man. You had a little hiccup on the last song. We're, we're back in there, man. It's fine. The main verse riff has a chug pattern topped off with a dissonant note-filled turnaround, while the rhythm section plays it mostly straight here. The chorus sees more movement in the bass as well as a memorable vocal line that's almost a hook, while the keyboards are playing staccato back in the mix. The bridge sections have Patton shouting in a megaphone that's almost impossible to make out what he's saying, though he seems to be playing an auctioneer, and Gold gets a mini bass solo spot, there it is, Sam, that he makes tasty use of. Martin's solo has some nice guitarmony to close out the track, and the lyrics are about a kid who gets held back in kindergarten and recognizes he's getting older and bigger than the other kids and wonders if he'll graduate to first grade this year. I also read that it could be about an adult who continues to mentally live in the past and he can't move on from it. Is this going to seduce the mainstream? Fuck no, but it's still a winner for me. The following track is Be Aggressive, written by Roddy Bottom. Sam, what do you make of this? I think uh, this could be on a Tenacious D record. It would easily fit there. It might be the best song in that record. Mm-hmm. So many things to like about this song. Um, it likes to be played loud. And uh, I can't think of many song that, that uh, makes me sing like a cheerleader and uh, scream, I swallow, I swallow, <laughs> I swallow. And I will say it proudly. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I dig. I don't. I'm not sure what it's about. I'm sure you guys can elaborate on that. But oh, you know um, what it's about, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, man, I think Mike Borden's a fucking man on this track. And uh, you know him and Billy Gold, Gold, however you say it, is a uh, really cool. This is a banger, dude. Lou, what do you think? The spooky keyboard started off and then they crashed into the Wasso Funkathon. <laughs> Roddy's keys stabbing through to play foil to Patton's delivery. <laughs> Roddy wrote this one about loving to give blowjobs. <laughs> then commends Patton on taking the fall for singing. I swallow, I swallow like a pro. Good on you, dude. Take one for the team. The cheerleader chorus gets you singing along. And the solo gives me the idea that Jim Martin listened to a lot of Kirk Hammett and Exodus, but great fucking tune. And yeah, I'm singing at the top of my lungs. I swallow, I swallow. Well, they all kind of knew each other, right? Martin and Hammett and wasn't Martin in a band with Cliff Burton at one point too. I'm pretty sure. Oh yeah, Yeah. 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 Mike Patton wants you to know he takes it on his knees and he swallows and he's got the cheerleaders backing him up to prove it. Or is it really about Roddy Bottom, since, you know, the gay guy wrote this song? A Phantom of the Opera organ intro transitions into a total funk rock jam. Martin plays the wah-wah drenched funk licks and rips it up a little bit on the solo. 
Gould slaps away on the bass. Bottom brings the funk-styled organ washes. Borden assertively drives the thing and keeps it on track. Like you, I totally agree with you guys. Mike Borden's the fucking man. There are plenty of additional noises and percussive sounds, and Patton uses a snotty sneer to his vocals to make the point that this guy needs the cock. He's got a need to feed on the seed. Bottom said he wrote the explicit words because it would amuse him to see Mike Patton, a straight guy, singing them. And Patton doesn't hold back, man. He goes for it. The cheerleaders on the chorus is a humorous touch. I remember the cheerleaders from my high school doing that very cheer. Be aggressive. And I don't know what inspired inspired the fellas to include that. But on this album, anything goes. So why the hell not? (laughs) The next track is A Small Victory. Written by Billy Gould, Roddy Bottom, Mike Borden, and Mike Patton. Lou, what do you say? Roddy starts this off with the cheap keyboard patch that almost sounds new wave. The rest of the guys heavy it up, and Patton goes ahead and buries Anthony Kiedis at his own game. It's a catchy melody. Get your head bouncing like the rest of this album, and it gives you an earwormer day. Jim Martin's solo is bouncy and headbanging in the same moment. But this might be the gay disco he was talking about that in the band's direction that was heading that was the reason why he left. I kind of like it. Mike sounds like he's hiccuping between verses and he loves the sound of his own voice. I bet he was labeled a hyperactive child. You think? (laughs) (laughs) Sam. (laughs) Football, man. (laughs) It's Saturday in the South. And yeah. That's what I thought about it. It's like, that, it's like the, the fucking center can't hear him, man. It's too much noise. The center can't hear. He keeps going. <laughs> but anyway, I love this fucking melody. It sounds Eastern to me, man. And uh, there's more fucking earworms, man. But I'll just keep my mouth shut. I just That's been in my head all week. This is one of those that slipped by me when I was younger, man. But it might be one of my favorite songs on the record. It might be my favorite. But I love the way that it goes from this Eastern fucking melody and then to straight up rock and then to like a hip hip hop thing. It sounds hip hop to me. And then to a funk thing. And then to like, it just blends together. And uh, it's hard to label this band, man. But I love it so fucking much, man. It's fucking 30 years old. And it's still twisting all the genres to make it fresh and new. And I, I fucking love this song, dude. This is the one track on the album I would deem fairly accessible. The guitar and vocals feature a melody you can hang your hat on. And though there's still plenty of craziness, it does feel like a nod a little bit to the real thing's sound. It's also reflected in Patton's vocals. He dabbles just a bit in that nasally whine that defined that previous record, but he definitely veers off into Bizarro World soon enough. 
Martin's guitar adds chugging riffage. Bottom's keyboards are up front and prominent. We're treated to more sampled sounds, and Gould's bass is slapping and popping underneath it all. I read that Patton said that the lyrics are semi-autobiographical. His father was a coach, and young Mike was a competitor, and he wanted to win every game, and he was pissed and a sore loser when he lost. I can relate to that. I had to learn how to lose, too, when I was a kid. I was decent at sports, and I won some and lost some. And it shouldn't bother me, but it does! This was the third single that reached number 11 on the Billboard Alternative Airplay chart. And you still won't hear... The following track is Crack Hitler, written by Billy Gould, Roddy Bottom, Mike Borden, Jim Martin, and Mike Patton. Sam, lay it on us. All right. Um, this is fucked up song. I don't. I'm not sure what it's about, but okay. That's what I'm gonna go. It sounds like dude borrowed Curtis Mayfield's wah pedal, and then you starting out with the whack 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 whack. Crazy. I hope this you approve of this, but whack whack whack. It's fucking out of straight Curtis Mayfield's wah pedal. Might be a strat, even. I'm not sure. I guarantee you, Ray Z loves this album. I guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> then you get to a groove, and it's led by, uh, you know, Roddy Bottom and Gould's a slap bass again, and it's fucking awesome. I don't know what the fuck this shit's about, but in the, between the verses, you know, it kind of breaks up the, the cool ass groove that they're going on with a hey hey gang vocal and. When it goes into the uh, the different time signature, I don't know, or tempo, whatever, that they do, it kind of breaks up that thing that they had going on. But they needed to do that because if they would have kept doing that, it, it wouldn't have been as good. How do you guys like that? Lou. The porno funk wah-wah. Sounds like an old 70s cop show. <laughs> Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> Mannix. I'm waiting for the horn stab. <laughs> you know, and, the, and and then they freeze the, the the picture, you know, and they put the guy's name on the bottom. <laughs> David Allen Greer. <laughs> Keyboard sounds like a cheap Casio from the 80s. It's cracking me up how they use it so well, though. We've got a few dozen Mike Pattons coming at you from every side and twos and threes through a megaphone, then thrown into a prison work camp and then shipped back into a carousel of mics. <laughs> this song's as schizophrenic as Mike Patton is. There's definitely a lot of voices in this guy's head, and I'm glad he's got an outlet. The bulk of the song is another revved up funk rock workout with Martin laying heavy on that walk a chunk of funk pattern. Gould slapping that bass like a motherfucker. Bottoms keyboards adding melody as well as atmosphere. And Borden once more holding it down with that cracking backbeat. These sections are broken up with heavy handed Nazi-esque marching interludes. Hey, 
hey, that could have come straight out of the wall. I think Pink showed up and tried to take over this song, and then he gave it back. <laughs> Patton sounds like Tommy the Cat with the megaphone effect again. And Gould said the lyrics are about a drug overlord who indulges in his own product and imagines himself as a modern-day Adolf Hitler. He's going to teach the world a lesson. Say hello to my little friend, Crack Hitler. The penultimate track is Jizzlobber, written by Jim Martin and Mike Patton. Lou, what about this one? Sounding like it was recorded in the swamps of the bayou. Roddy hitting the horror chord over and over like an alarm. Jim Martin's got a buzzsaw tone, and it's tuned down pretty fucking low. Heavy as fuck, sludgy riff. Patton's screaming reminds me in, uh, of, in hindsight, this spawned Limp biscuit five years later. $3 bill, y'all. Not to be outdone, it's got Metallica Orion flavor later on. As it evolves and devolves with Patton moaning and crooning and wailing, it it finishes off in church with a majestic pipe organ and full angel chorus. These guys are so predictable. I mean, really. (laughs) Sam. (laughs) Oh, man. I like the crickets at the beginning of the song. It uh, reminds me of growing up around uh, crickets and bodies of water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like the synth stabs in the, in the beginning of this one, and it makes it strange, and it's odd, and it's full of angst. And I like Martin's guitar tone. It sounds like it has a chorus effect on it, and it, it sounds okay to me. I would not have chosen the, the chorus effect, but, you know, I... I noticed it, so, okay. But, you know, he has his own thing. And Patton screams, like, again, like a fucking choking witch. (laughs) Somebody's choking a witch and comes out of Mike Patton's face. (laughs) It's weird, man. And at 327, Martin plays a a new riff, and the band falls in behind it. And I I like the song again. I love that part, fucking part, man. And uh, it's but it's like a horror movie. It's disturbing in all the best ways, and they they uh, bring tension and make you uh, nervous and uneasy, and then they let it go sometimes, you know. And it's a lot of like Frank Zappa, a lot of like uh, Floyd, Shawnee Crazy Diamonds. That's an odd chord, but then they they bring you home with the next one. And there you go, that's my superpower. And the organ at the end is is kind of creepy at first, especially with the choir. It goes on a little long for me. I don't mind it, though. And then uh, they end on a major chord, which kind of gives you hope to a really dark record, man. It's uh, they, they end on a major chord, which uh, I thought was cool. Oh, we're getting really weird again. Rushing water and cricket sound effects give way to eerie, high-pitched staccato keyboard stabs and Martin's phased and crunchy guitar while the drums will pound into your brain supported by low, rumbling bass. 
We get a bridge section with dirty sounding guitar arpeggios and a grinding sludgy rhythm that turns into the outro section that finally fades into Bottom's ominous church organ and keyboard chorus vocals that finish the track up. Yeah, there's a lot going on here musically. And Patton's voice has a distorted effect on it again. And these lyrics are really obscure, but I read that it's about Patton's fear of going to jail. And if I'm on the right track, it's about a traumatized prisoner being beaten and raped in jail. And he's sorry. He is what he's done. And this is the price he has to pay. Gould also implied it's about a porn star. So what the fuck do I know? On an album loaded with wackadoodle tunes, this one might be the most whacked out of all. And interestingly, it's the one track that Jim Martin had a big hand in writing. Go figure. And that brings us to the final track, Midnight Cowboy, written by John Barry. Sam, how about this last one? No. <laughs> Don't like it. What the fuck? Just let it. You have the perfect ending for the record right there. This is dumb. <laughs> I don't like it. I mean, I, I appreciate them. I, they can play their instruments well. They can, you know, do all that. But why the fuck? Why? What, what are you doing? Is, are they that much of a fan of this Midnight Cowboy, the movie or something that? the soundtrack of this movie. Why would you do that? Maybe it's just to say a fuck you to the record company or something like that. And if that's the case, then okay, I, I get it. Um, but no, I'm not, I'm not going to listen to it. Man. Lou. Wow. The stark contrast of the last track ending on that gigantic choral finish to the simplicity of a shopping mall Magnus family organ <laughs> intro to this familiar 70s movie soundtrack is jarring. And it, it begins with a single instrument that... Remember, everybody had one in the 70s. There, there was, you know, and you kept the books in the seat. And this is, to tell you the truth, this is one of the friggin' songs that I learned on that. And, and it sounds exactly like that, too. That... You know, and you remember he had the chords on the side that gave totally man it builds instrument by instrument to with power to to finish strong and and faithful it's faithful to the original it's got a ride off into the sunset quality that I can guarantee had the record execs fucking shitting in their pants on what to do with these guys. <laughs> It, and their new possibly criminally insane singer that brought them their first mega hit such a short time ago. I dig it. Fuck you if you don't. So there you go. And all right, while we're on it, because I know we're not going to mention it, so let's mention it, is the reissue of this has Easy, which which they added on to the album so that it would just sell something over in Europe because it was a mega hit over in Europe. It, it, it up. Note for note cover 
of the Commodores easy. <laughs> <laughs> no real embellishments. And it just, it, it came across as fucking genuine. And to tell you the truth, I dig the shit out of that too. So there you go. <laughs> so of course, Faith No More has to finish the album with a straight up cover of the theme of the 1969 movie Midnight Cowboy with the original harmonica part done on Bottom's keyboards. This band was always known for doing oddball cover tunes as a joke, but playing them seriously and not thumbing their noses at the material. And that's what they do here. It acts as a cool down, a relaxer. Just sit back and let the stress of this album go. But uh, yeah, it doesn't even remotely fit with the rest of the record. It serves its purpose, but come on. It's Aaron's Stinky Stinker. Now that the track by track is done, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0 to 5 system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which ain't never gonna amount to nothing. Sam, what are your final thoughts on Angel Dust? Man, I, I think uh, a few weeks ago, I'd have given this a 3.5, but I think I'm gonna give it a 4. It's just grown on me even more. I think I appreciate it more than I did back then. I don't like it more than I like album of the year, but I, I dig it so much more than I than I did before I started digging in. So I think a four. I'm gonna give it a four. It might be a five one day, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep coming back to this for sure. Lou. While initially disappointed in this after I was so excited about a new Faith No More C D to be delivered such a different sounding product than I was expecting Uh, over the years, it's grown on me for precisely that fact. And now this is an indispensable entry in my collection. These guys were ahead of their time and I'd put them up against everything that came after. It was sad when they packed it in, in 1998 And I was thrilled when they came back with Saul Invictus in 2015. Like nothing's ever happened. As a matter of fact, that motherfucker single was even better. That wasn't even on that album. It came out, I think, a couple of years before. These guys are definitely no one-trick pony. I give the CD a four. Standout tracks for me are Midlife Crisis, Everything's Ruined, and Be Aggressive. I swallow. After the success of the Real Thing album and tour in 1989 and 1990, Faith No More took a break for a year and a half before beginning work on the follow-up record. During that time, Mike Patton reconnected with his old high school band, Mr. Bungle, and recorded their debut album, which creatively revitalized him. When Faith No More reconvened to begin the writing process for the next album, Patton's gonzo influence helped shape the new tunes, and the band decided not to play it safe and attempt to create a Real Thing Part 2. This did not please guitarist Jim Martin, who was unhappy with the new direction of the music and did not take part in the majority of the writing. The band entered the studio in late 1991 with producer Matt Wallace and recorded 19 tracks, 13 of which were selected for the album. The album cover was an airbrush photo of a great egret against a blue background with a back cover photo of a cow hanging on a meat hook. And the album title, which Jim Martin also hated, was selected for the connotation of the beautiful colliding with the ugly, as Angel Dust was the street name for the dangerous recreational drug PCP. When the album was released in June 92, it met with wide critical acclaim, and though it confused fans at first, over time it's come to be regarded as one of Faith No More's best works. 
The band toured the album extensively until July 1993, when Jim Martin left Faith No More over his creative differences with the rest of the group when the tour was completed. As I said before, when I first heard this, I didn't know what to make of it, and I really did not like it. What the fuck happened to the mishmash of musical styles that were kind of thrown into a blender and served up with tons of catchy melodies and hooks galore? This album is decidedly anti-commercial. At first, I took it as a fuck you from the band to what? The record label? Its fans? Their expectations? I hadn't discovered Mr. Bungle yet, so I did not see this coming. Then I thought, is it me? Am I just not getting it? So I listened again. And then I listened to this fucker again and again, over and over, until that magical thing that, if you're lucky, happens to you when you take time with a record. It clicked. I began to see this as an art piece. I stopped looking for the hooks, and I was able to pick out individual parts of the tracks that I liked. And then I was able to hear the combinations of sounds together in a way that I found pleasing and ultimately rewarding. In other words, I re-hotwired my brain to enjoy something that had previously been out of my comfort zone. I made my comfort zone wider. And that served me well for the Bungle, Zappa, and Beefheart records I would enjoy later on. I'd be willing to bet that if you asked a hardcore Faith No More fan what his or her favorite album of theirs is, the answer would more often than not be this one. It's somehow become the sexy pick for fans, probably because it's so difficult and challenging at first listen. It lets you in on a secret that most other people won't get. It's not my personal favorite, but do I love this album? You bet your ass I do. I give Angel Dust a four and a half, and to me it's Mike Patton's tour de force with this band and catapulted him into one of my favorite all-time rock vocalists. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com are also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. If you feel the podcast has value and would like to make a contribution to support it, please head over to Patreon and the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews page and sign up on one of the monthly tiers. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron. I'm Sam. And I'm Luke. See ya. I swallow. You still won't hear. You still won't hear. Everybody uh, should know that this chair. Um, I'm not gonna undo it. I want the others to do it. <laughs> do the do the do the letters, man. Can you do the letters.
That's actually strangely challenging. Ra ra, she's boom ba. Break a break a firecracker, she's boom ba. Bugs bunny, bugs bunny, ra ra ra. Ra ra, kick me in the knee. Ra ra ras, kick me in the other knee. Rat shit, bat shit, dirty old twat. 69 assholes, 